Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Yeah, what's disappointing about this conversation is that you have politicians and insiders that continue to use the same talking points year after year. All right, well, we didn't say anything. We haven't even started the show yet. I don't know what conversation you're talking about, sir. Uh, Oh, God, yeah. Well, I didn't do it. Don't blame me. Your Ben Jarofsky Show for Tuesday, January 24th is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Oh, where to go? Oh, what to do? Oh, what to eat? Oh, what to drink? They talk about pot, concert listings, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky, Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can, ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y. Tuesday, January 24th, and this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Mayoral Madness Tuesday, and here's why. Because everywhere I look, Mayoral Madness is blossoming and blooming. That's not like a blooming sound. It's, I don't know what that was. I'm running out of sounds, uh, but uh, Mayor Madness is here and everywhere. Uh, let's just talk about three fronts that uh, over the weekend, just keeping things local. So I'm going to avoid uh, going down the path of Tucker Carlson's uh, war against M&Ms, which is also on my mind. I'm going to put that to the side. I'm going to show you I can do two things at once. I'm going to put that to the side as much as I want to talk about that. Talk about it tomorrow. But before you do that, uh, do you have a Tucker Carlson impression? I uh, know I don't. I, you know, I, <laughs> I I don't. Uh, I, all of a sudden, I went into Barack Obama. I don't because I haven't seen enough of him. Do you have a Tucker Carlson invitation? Uh, good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Uh, <laughs> these liberals. Oh, I got nothing. That that sounds more like that other guy that you used to, the, the other right winger. Oh, uh, Shapiro? Who, ben Shapiro? Yeah, yeah, that sounds like Shapiro. You're heading to Shapiro. No, country. Shapiro's more like, seriously, guy, seriously, seriously. <laughs> Coming up, why the Democrats are horrible and so much more. But first, do you need bed sheets? Seriously, guys? Seriously? You know, the funny thing is, is that I don't know Ben Shapiro. I, I don't believe I've ever heard Ben Shapiro. Maybe I've had once or twice. But I have Dennis's impression of, uh, and it's much the same uh, as um, Alex Jones for years and years. Uh, I never heard Alex Jones, but I heard your impression of him. Anyway, mayoral madness, uh, before I bring on my uh, distinguished guest, who's not going to be talking about uh, Chicago mayoral politics, but I just have to sum up the weekend uh, before we get into the issues of the day with the state uh, representative Bob Morgan from Highland Park. But um, 
Uh, number one, a new poll. Uh, Lori Lightfoot came out with a poll. Mayor Lori Lightfoot came out with a poll, which a uh, big surprise showed that she is number one uh, in the race to uh, be mayor of Chicago, which is interesting. Chuy Garcia's poll showed that he was number one uh, in the race for Chicago. Paul Vallis came out with a poll that showed that he was number one in the race for Chicago. And I will be uh, coming out with a poll tomorrow to show that I am number one uh, in the race for mayor of Chicago. Uh, it's like mirror, mirror on the wall who's the fairest candidate of them all? Well, are you paying for this poll you are um it just underscores what i said uh last week in my column uh which is nobody knows nothing it's like the old uh, line from hollywood nobody knows nothing it's this is a very this is a unique a mayoral run uh chicago has sort of embraced the concept of a uh runoff uh, so for, I think pretty much everybody who's going to vote in Chicago knows we have a runoff system. Uh, and so folks are going to vote for who they want to vote for in the first round. And the result will be no one will get more than 50 percent of the vote. So it's like all these polls. And this is quite what like similar reminds me of what the Republicans did in the midterms. They did it very successfully, successfully bamboozled the New York Times. Uh, all these polls that are intended to promote a candidate as opposed to be a, uh, a barometer you know, what's going on. So these polls have now become uh, campaign tactics. And my my recommendation to all voters out there, out, out there listening, just approach polls with a certain amount of caution. Do your due diligence? Don't believe it just because they say you in the poll, uh, say it in a poll. Uh, the other mayoral news, again, before I bring up Morgan, is um, Brandon Johnson, uh, the leftist candidate in the race. And I say this as a lefty. Uh, came out with a proposal uh, for taxes, which caught me off guard and uh, raising taxes. Um, uh, everybody listening to this show is probably too young to know who Walter Mondale is. Uh, but Walter Mondale was the 1984 Democratic nominee uh, for president of the United States against Ronald Reagan, who's the incumbent Republican. And in his acceptance speech at the Democratic convention in 1984, he made a pledge. He says, I am going uh, to raise your taxes. Ronald Reagan will raise your taxes, but he won't tell you. And so the notion was that a little bit of honesty would benefit at the polls, at the actual polls when people went to vote. And guess what? It didn't. <laughs> People may know in the back of their mind that we need taxes to run government. They may realize that no matter where the government is, be it in uh, Highland Park, be it in Wilmette, Winnetka, Evanston, I'm coming down the lakefront into Chicago from where Bob Morgan lives. I'm coming down the lakefront, ladies and gentlemen. Wherever you live, your government is funded by taxes, snow removal, police, firefighters, etc. But by and large, no skillful politician wants you to think that he or she is raising your taxes to fund government, even though he may have to raise your taxes to fund government. And so for Brandon Johnson to come forth, kind of a bold move with uh, a proposal uh, to raise taxes. And he's it was, uh, you know, it was um, set up to make it clear that it's quote unquote progressive taxes. So it will fall on wealthier people, although the income tax, I believe the level is 100 grand. Uh, I think there's a lot of people in the city of Chicago who don't think they're wealthy if they're making a hundred grand. So he may want to th rethink that proposal, uh, call it a work in progress uh, as he moves on. But this will be an extreme experience experiment. I can't recall a mayoral candidate 
definitely in the last eight years since um, the first runoff, coming forth with a specific proposal to raise taxes, as specific as Brandon Johnson's are. And uh, so will he still make the runoff having proposed to raise taxes? It'd be an interesting experience. Bold move, Brandon Johnson. I got to give you credit for that. Bold move, uh, kind of out of the Walter Mondale playbook. Didn't work well for Walter Mondale in 1984, obviously, but I don't think anything would have worked well for Walter Mondale in 1984. Ronald Reagan, uh, we, that was member Morning in America. I would morning. They spelled it M O R N I N G as a lefty. I spelled it M O U R N I N G. It was not a Reagan fan. All right. Without further ado, I'm going to bring on uh, Bob Morgan, and we're going to do a, a dramatic shift of gears to talk about assault rifle bans, assault weapon bans, violence in our country, and the efforts uh, by Mr. Morgan to put a halt to that. So, first of all, welcome to the show, Bob. And, and let's let's clear the air. I mean, I have a poll that shows I'm in the lead as well for mayoral <laughs> in Chicago. So I just want to put it out there. It's not over. Okay. Bob Morgan throwing his hat in the ring. Wait a minute. He lives in Highland Park. So what? Uh, I live in Deerfield. It, it oh, isn't going to work. It isn't okay. going to work. But I have a poll that shows it. So. I, my humblest apologies to absolutely everyone in Highland Park and Deerfield for even remotely confusing one from the other, okay? Uh, the Bulls used to practice in Deerfield. That's an important distinction. Am I correct? In the Bulls, I don't think you're old enough to remember that. Are you, Bob, that when the Bulls no, practiced? I am, and that's true. Uh, they had a, the Berto Center. Uh, there was a practice facility up in Deerfield. Yes. Uh, all right. They no longer practice there, but they did. Um, all right, so let's talk uh, about... Uh, this has been a um, a mission of yours uh, since really the Fourth of July. Uh, there was uh, the reason I link you to Highland Park is because you were in Highland Park on the Fourth of July uh, when the shootings occurred. So why don't you just introduce people a little bit to yourself uh, and your moment that day uh, and how it affected your life? So take it away, Bob. Tell tell your story. Sure. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Um, Bob Morgan, state representative for the 58th district, which is Southeast Lake County. It's Deerfield, Highland Park, uh, Lake Forest, Lake Bluff, all the way up to the Naval Base in North Chicago. Um, and unfortunately, my family had encountered uh, gun violence before. Uh, just over five years ago, I lost uh, three cousins to a murder-suicide. And so gun violence uh, was something, unfortunately, I was, I was familiar with. Uh, but you're right that the 4th of July was was a particularly um, uh, important inflection moment in my role as, as an advocate and a public servant with regards to gun violence. Um, was at the parade with my wife and my two children. Uh, we were um, probably five, 10 minutes away from uh, being at the spot of the shooting. We were going to be marching the parade. A number of volunteers were with us um, and got word that there was there, there was a shooting. Uh, after getting my my wife and, and kids to uh, to a nearby building, um, and my my in laws were there, and took them to safety, took them home. Um, I ran to the scene to try and help, um, and unfortunately saw a lot of the victims and helped some who who uh, were who survived. Um, and that moment, just over six months ago, uh, really transformed my role, but also the community, Highland Park for a very, very long time into the future will be known for the Highland Park 4th of July mass shooting, as opposed to the many wonderful things that Highland Park and Highwood offers. Um, and that that uh, 
defined and probably will always define my role as a state representative as a legislator uh, for the last six months was chairing a, a working group that Speaker uh, Chris Welch put together um, to pass gun safety legislation that in the past the legislature has been unable or unwilling to do. And as you know, as your listeners know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were fortunate enough to pass um, a statewide assault weapon ban, high capacity magazine ban, and a number of other things that will reduce gun violence in Illinois. Uh, all right, we'll get into the specifics of that legislation, but obviously this is still uh, an issue that our country is struggling with. Uh, over the weekend, there were two back-to-back -back, uh, mass shootings in California. Uh, I believe 17 people were uh, killed uh, in those shootings. It would have been worse without the, uh, uh, the heroic uh, confrontation of uh, Brandon Say, who uh, disarmed the shooter, uh, who was probably going to kill a whole bunch of other people. Um, so this is a, uh, uh, a, na a nationwide uh, problem, Bob. And uh, I'll start with this question. I struggle with this. Uh, get your response. Uh, we could pass uh, really stringent uh, anti-assault weapon laws uh, in Illinois. But of course, if Indiana doesn't have them, if Wisconsin doesn't have them, if Iowa, Michigan, et cetera, and so forth don't have them, then guns will uh, come into the state. And really, it's a federal problem. Uh, what's your response to people like me when they say that to you? I, there's no question the best way to address the proliferation of guns, of which we have three to 400 million not people, but guns. Um, the the obvious answer to that is address it at the federal level. Um, there's good news there. Many people have already forgotten, but President Biden, and in a bipartisan way, um, U.S. Congress passed this summer, for the first time in 30 years, a really comprehensive uh, gun safety bill that did a number of really important things. One, it created a federal penalty, a crime um, behind gun trafficking used to be a petty offense. You'd pay a fine for gun running uh, at the federal level, at least. And so we are now starting to see better coordination between ATF and state police. That's one of the things that our, our law did, because as we know, over 40% of gun crimes in Illinois come from guns that originate in other states like Indiana and Missouri. So it's a real issue. And we live in this network of states where we're only as good as our neighboring states and their laws. Um, and this impacts us on reproductive health, impacts us on uh, economic opportunity and specifically on guns. Uh, all right. So uh, the response I usually give people is uh, when they uh, use this argument to me is, you know what? You got to start somewhere. And uh, to do nothing is just such a hollow feeling, Bob, you, you know, like, yeah, this is a, uh, a federal problem. This is a national problem, but to do nothing is just a sign of helplessness. And so I almost feel like I have to do something, uh, even though it won't ultimately uh, cure the problem. And I don't know, yeah, is that meaningless? You're talking about a meaninglessness there, but if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah, and, and you know, the states that have passed high-capacity magazine bans, they're seeing a reduction in gun deaths. You know, what we're seeing in Chicago and in other urban parts of the state is more and more they're using high-capacity magazines and these rapid-fire devices in the auto-sear, turning a handgun into a fully automatic weapon. 
And what happens for those of you who use firearms, you know that that doesn't make you more accurate, just means you fire more rounds. And unfortunately, that just means we have more bystanders, bystanders who are getting shot. Um, and so reducing that makes a big difference and means more people live. Um, it will stop every mass shooting, will stop every shooting. No, because we have this extraordinary number of firearms and a, and a, a gun culture in the, in the U.S. that we don't have elsewhere. Um, but it will reduce gun deaths. And to me, that was the metric. It was, are we, what are we doing here? Are we going to do something that just makes us feel good or are we going to reduce gun violence? So what exactly does uh, your uh, bill uh, do and how does it change the law in Illinois? We did a couple of things immediately uh, on purpose. Uh, we banned the sale of semi-automatic rifles. Uh, we banned the sale of high capacity magazines. It's uh, a maximum of 15 rounds for a handgun and 10 rounds for a long gun for a rifle. Um, and we also immediately banned and also criminalized these rapid fire devices, which are already illegal at the federal level, but we don't prosecute gun crimes at the federal level. We prosecute them at the state level. And so we really needed to create criminal penalties around these as they're being found more and more, turning these handguns into fully automatic weapons. We expanded our red flag laws. Um, we, I think as a general matter, I think a lot of people agree, Democrat, Republican, that we should be taking firearms away from people who are a danger to themselves or others. It's our red flag law, our firearm restraining order. And so we extended the period of time for that because we were in the low end of up to six months. And with the domestic situation, those extend months and years. So we wanted to make sure that judges have the power to make sure guns are removed from the home when that's appropriate. Uh, we also, again, going to the gun trafficking piece, uh, we put into the core mission of the Illinois State Police to deal with gun trafficking uh, across state lines. So we've spent decades putting money into combating drugs coming across state lines. So law enforcement knows how to do this. Uh, we just haven't focused on gun trafficking. We've focused on drug trafficking. Um, and so this is going to become a core mission of the state police. And there's a lot of things that we know how to do. We just haven't done it. All right. And so from the outset, uh, when you proposed uh, your legislation, what was the opposition uh, that you faced from your colleagues in the state house, and how did you make compromises uh, to win passage of your bill? It was a journey. Uh, the, the Obviously, the Democrats have a majority in the House and the Senate, so that's helpful. Uh, but there were several Republicans who expressed support for the concepts. And uh, as many of you know, um, outgoing and, and now a departed um, House Republican leader, Jim Durkin, um, as well as another Republican in the House, joined him in supporting this, this bill. Uh, but also, it was mostly going to be a Democratic uh, bill if we were going to pass it. Um, so the first thing was building consensus within the House. Uh, so we have these working groups, which sound benign and sounds like a good place for bills to go and die. But uh, they're actually a very, very serious tool that we've used successfully over the last three, four years to pass big stuff. Um, and it's, you know, we had legislators on my working group for firearm reform from all over the state, suburban, city, downstate. Uh, and it was a good group to build this this consensus around what are the things we can do. You know, mass shootings in Highland Park are one thing, but those impacted Highland Park once in a generation. The everyday gun violence, handgun violence, and illegal gun trafficking, it's a real issue. And we had to make sure we were addressing that too. 
Uh, so we built consensus. We had a ton of public hearings. We did that over the month of December, over 15 hours of public hearings, heard from thousands of people, had stakeholder meetings with dozens of groups, pro-Second Amendment groups, gun violence prevention groups, victims and survivors, and everything, and um, built a process where the House was comfortable. Uh, we spent a lot of time doing that, and then we had to help the Senate, and the Senate had to help themselves. They, they had a different process. And to be fair, the Senate uh, has been introducing um, assault weapon bans for years, uh, and the House used to be the issue of passing meaningful legislation like that. So it was normal legislative one-on-ones, um, grassroots advocacy from you know, Moms Demand Action and, and young people saying enough is enough. Uh, and we just we just pushed and pushed and pushed until it got done. Uh, that's an interesting point you made, and I'd love to, for you to elaborate on it. Uh, how long have you been in the House? Uh, so I'm starting my third term. So I've been okay. in there for years. All right. So you, you, you were experienced the Michael Madigan years. Um, so the Senate, <laughs> I'm so skeptical when it comes to how the Senate and the House during the Mad- Madigan Cullerton years operated, Bob, and the orchestration. Uh, I could tell you story after story about property tax laws sure. uh, and elected school board laws that either flourished in the Senate, died in the House, or flourished in the House and died in the Senate. And it was, I thought was, the cynic in me just, oh, they take turns as to who's going to kill this initiative. Um, but what what was going on where a gun control bills would flourish in the Senate, relatively speaking, and then die in the House? Like, what was accountable uh, for that dynamic? I think it was pretty clear that Speaker Madigan didn't think that uh, gun legislation was a winner for the House Democrats. I think if you look at the makeup of the House Democrats 10 years ago, there was a very different makeup of, we had a lot more downstate and central Illinois Democrats who were much more moderate, whose districts really were more moderate. Um, for a variety of reasons that are pretty obvious, uh, we, we are self-segregating and moving towards uh, like-minded people. And downstate is very, 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 very different from, from north of I-80 now. And um, I think that, that that dynamic has shifted. Um, so I think 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was a different political dynamic where you were definitely going to jeopardize someone's reelection by voting yes on a gun bill. Um, I think that that has changed. And I think that the House and the Senate, uh, I, I think the the remnants of that that assumption was still there for a long time. Because uh, I, I think that the state of Illinois supports these bills, and not by a little bit. I think we, we saw polling that literally every demographic um, had over 50% support for assault weapon ban in Illinois. And so I, I think it was, again, this, this legacy perception of, what what is going to be rewarded by the voters and there used to be a lot of fear around the nra and not so much about suburban moms and now that's flipped you know we are accountable to to suburban you know and city of chicago uh, moms demand action advocates and volunteers and much less so to the state rifle association or the sheriff's association or whatever association wants to to you know do political grandstanding on this they they don't reflect the state I think in many ways, uh, this is very similar to the evolution, I'll use that word, Bob, of the state legislator's attitude toward abortion rights. Uh, and a lot of this precedes your, your time uh, 
in the state house, but uh, Terry Cosgrove from Personal Pack can give you a whole history uh, yeah. about how attitudes changed uh, in the ho- in the legislature, particularly in the House, and how Michael Madigan uh, moved from one. Uh, <laughs> one position to another. He evolved uh, on this matter. Uh, in part, he was a very pragmatic, I would put it this way, uh, that's the best word I can think of, uh, politician, Bob, in what he was, your point's well taken. Uh, he had a sense of what threatened his uh, his caucus. Uh, he wanted to defend his caucus, keep his power. Uh, and right. if he felt legislation was going to hurt his caucus members, he would bottle it up. Uh, and that was the end of that. But uh, Terry Cosgrove and the abortion rights activists convinced him uh, that uh, he could keep uh, in power by shifting on abortion. So he did. Uh, I think that's what's happening. What you're saying, uh, we're in the middle of a similar evolution in terms of Madigan's long gone, but uh, we're in the middle of a similar evolution uh, on gun control. Am I correct in my analysis? Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities. I I think abortion and reproductive health is an innately highly personal thing whereas gun violence creates this ripple in society um but reproductive health is much more acute you know it's literally a personal decision and it impacts someone's life so uh specifically in in uh, in, in a way that others can't necessarily understand and feel um and so there, there's a lot of uh, analogy, though, of the way that the politics has shifted. And I also think that, um, at least speaking for the House, you know, we are we're much more member driven than we were in the past. You know, when, you, when people ask me, well, how's the House function now and under the new speaker? And the answer is Speaker Welch listens to his caucus. And if the caucus builds a coalition and a majority of something around something or an idea or something you want to pursue, that's what happens. It's it's very different. Oh, no, my God. We're now in a tangent, but uh, <laughs> the stories I heard about Madigan, like people will come to him and they would say, do you have the votes for some progressive legislation? Show me the votes that you have uh, and then I'll consider it as opposed to him actually taking the initiative to round up the votes, if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah, well, and to be fair, I mean, I think uh, Speaker Welch also wants to see the votes. You know, I, I think we are still a pretty diverse caucus. You know, now we're 78 members out of 118. We're the biggest we've ever been. And we're still a big tent. We do have downstate members. We we still have moderate members. Um, so we, we do have a big tent that we have to manage. And what I found is that um, under this new leadership, I, I think that it's much more member driven. And, and I don't know a better way to say it. It just really is. All right. So uh, what were get specific changes that you made, specific changes you made in the bill to reassure uh, members of that 78 with the Democratic members uh, that it was a bill they could support? We made a number of changes. Uh, when I think about the changes we made, they kind of came from two angles, um, one for the more moderate uh, mostly hunting was a big issue. So a lot of considerations of hunting and the legacies of hunting and making sure that that was uh, protected and not not really uh, upended. And the other piece was more on the progressive side. Uh, if we're talking polar ends of the, st- the spectrum, making sure we're not creating criminalization um, and repeating some of the mistakes we've made in the past on disproportionately impacting black and brown communities. Um, it's really part of the ethos of the house and the Senate, too. I, I think the Illinois General Assembly right now is very focused on undoing some of those wrongs of, of criminalizing conduct. Um, 
especially you know first time offenders, young people, people that get these mandatory minimums uh, for life sentences, things like that. And that was that was really what was pulling us on both sides. So the under twenty one piece originally, my first draft had it, it prohibited under twenty one individuals from getting FOID card. Right now, if you're 18, 19, or 20, you can get a FOID card if your guardian signs off on it. This was a big thing in the press for the Highland Park shooter. Um, and what we got pushback on was, was both that impacts hunting, so we shouldn't do it. And it was also these 18, 19, and 20-year-olds in inner city communities in particular are the fastest growing communities seeking FOID cards to defend themselves. So if they're going to defend themselves anyway with a handgun, why are we going to move in a direction that criminalizes that that conduct when they're trying to follow the law? And I thought that was a really compelling argument. And so we didn't have the votes to add that. But more importantly, I just think it was the right thing to do to pump the brakes on that idea. I know why we wanted to do it. Just the developing mind and disproportionately high number of gun crimes are committed by 18, 19, and 20-year-olds. But those are all real considerations. And so that's, that's an example of something that was in the bill that we took out. Okay, and so even with those changes, uh, and I remember following it from afar with uh, newspaper accounts, etc. Uh, how many votes did you get uh, to uh, pass the bill? Uh, the final vote in the House was sixty-eight votes out of seventy-three Democrats, and we had two Republicans in there, so sixty-six Dems. Sixty-six Dems and two Repo- Who were the two Republicans? Uh, Jim Durkin and um, uh, not to get him in trouble, but Brad Stevens, who represents uh, Rosemont. Not to get him in trouble. <laughs> I love that. But that's just that was, that's so Illinois. Not to get him. That is so. He his community, I think uh, we'll we'll thank him for it, too. Uh, and uh, so Durkin is stepping down. Brad Stevens is still very much uh, in the state house. So you got one Republican who is not stepping down to vote for you, which I think is one more than uh, the gay uh, marriage bill got. I think. I think. Don't quote me on that, Bob Morgan. I think it's one more. Like that's right. And then, but but I also think it's important to know there were a lot of there were several other Republicans who supported this that did not vote for it. So I, I think that several of those are no longer in the chamber, people who ran for other offices, who lost re-election. Um, but I, I, I just think this is less of a Democrat-Republican issue than it's made out to be. And the partisan politics, I think, drives that, that kind of decision-making. I really have to push back with you on that one. And uh, that's, this is a conversation, a longer conversation for another time. Uh, I believe there is a cult of gun uh, that uh, controls the Republican Party right now, and that uh, defying that cult, that worship of the gun, uh, is sort of similar to actually taking a stand like Adam Kinzinger and uh, Liz Cheney did against the cult of Donald Trump and MAGA. And what could happen to them? They were. Well, I agree on the party. I agree on the party. I I was trying to intimate that the the people, the actual Republican voters, particularly in the Colorado counties in Chicago, I, I think uh, when I talk to voters in my district who are Republicans, they agree with this. Yeah. And and they do. And, and it could be an issue that gets uh, those voters that you're alluding to, those more moderate voters, um, to break from the Republican candidate and vote for uh, the Democratic candidate 
uh, like similar to what how abortion works uh, on this front. Uh, yes, you're absolutely. I see your point. Uh, and um, so, okay. Uh, and uh, since it was uh, signed into law, there's been pushback, and let's talk about the pushback. Uh, there's been a lawsuit. I believe the lawsuit was filed, uh, not just the threat of the lawsuit. Tom DeBoer. Yeah. yeah. Tom, the, the one I just read in the paper, Tom DeVore, uh, who ran for attorney general's Republican law, Squame Raul. And I believe one of his, um, uh, Darren Bailey, uh, the man we call DB, uh, the state senator, former state senator and the Republican candidate for governor. Uh, back state together. DB, is that what you yeah. call him? Our sorry, okay. affectionate nickname for him, DB. Uh, uh, hey, we've been we talk a lot about Darren Bailey, not so much anymore. Since yeah. uh, so yeah, DB, as we uh, affectionately call him on the Ben Jarowski show. Uh, and uh, DB, man, when he got up and he said, I think one of his last things he said, Well, on the abortion bill, I don't know if you saw it, she started reading from the Bible. And we so we teased him, I don't know, you know, it's like his Ann Esther moment, Ann Esther from uh, uh, Red Fox, uh, Sanford and Son would always be reading the Bible. So he had his Red and Esther moment uh, on the floor. And, and then he uh, he pledged to defy this law as well. And they filed suit. So what's your um, reaction to the suit that or suits? I should say there's been several. Uh, they call into question the constitutionality of this law. Say you didn't you overextended your authority, et cetera. There's state lawsuits and there's a federal lawsuit. The state lawsuits it, and including Senator Bailey's lawsuit uh, with, with Tom DeVore, uh, they go at the legislative process that, I mean, trust me, effectively, they're saying that pretty much every bill that the General Assembly passes is is somehow unconstitutional. So I, I think that's going to be overturned. It, it These are the same kinds of procedural, if not, if not identical issues that they filed against COVID vaccinations. Um, and they're they're going to be overturned um, when when higher courts look at these arguments. The federal case on constitutionality is a totally different thing. Uh, we knew there were going to be lawsuits. Every every time there's a gun safety bill filed and passed anywhere in the country, there's a lawsuit. Uh, so that that was never really a question. Um, what is a question is how uh, higher level courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, will handle um, these types of matters. They have given some different signals. They've never taken up an assault weapon ban or high capacity magazine ban at Supreme Court. So we don't really know what they'll do with that. We do know this case last summer, um, New York versus Bruin, uh, that that really changed the analysis that the Supreme Court was saying we should use. But then they also just last week refused to take up a new case against New York uh, that that really are similar issues. And they're saying, we're not going to touch it. Um, we're not going to continue to knock down these laws. So we don't know. I mean, uh, those who are saying there's a sheriff who said he's 100% sure this is unconstitutional. Even the Supreme Court doesn't know at this moment whether it's constitutional or not. So I, I think that we we have to take a step back. Um, we ban the sale immediately for 13 million people uh, of these really dangerous weapons and these these high capacity magazines. And I'm really proud of that. And that's going to make a difference. And the rest of these court cases are going to play themselves out over months and years. All right. And you mentioned sheriffs. And uh, I'd love to get your reaction to this. Uh, there's been sheriffs throughout the state uh, who have... Uh, vowed not to enforce it. I believe DuPage County Sheriff uh, vowed, was one of them, vowed not to enforce it. A classic case, DuPage County, of an area shifting uh, from Republican to moderate and even Democrat on on issues like this. Um, what's your thoughts about uh, sheriffs who uh, just 
select <laughs> select they choose which they're like cafeteria sheriffs are going to select which law they're going to invite. i wish they were like this when it came to marijuana all those years marijuana was illegal I, where, where were the sheriffs back then selectively no, I, I, enforcing I mean, the law go ahead some, some people in support of the sheriffs have said and, and they're right that there's a lot of prosecutorial discretion sheriffs have choices when the when we get pulled over for speeding a police officer has the choice to give you a ticket or not when you are, are are caught doing something criminal, they can choose whether to to file the paperwork and to seek charges. And the state's attorney has the discretion to file the, the charges, right? So th there's some truth there. I think what this is different, though, where this is different is that you have sheriffs who are just saying they don't care about gun violence. And that's really what they're saying. They're saying we don't care that there could be a mass shooting here from an AR-15 and a high-capacity magazine. And that messaging to me is the most dangerous thing to the communities that I think it's only a matter of time. You mentioned this weekend how many mass shootings we had. We're up to over 40 mass shootings in this month alone in the country, over 40 mass shootings. And the idea that we wouldn't try and make our communities safer is mind boggling to me. And these sheriffs are saying they're they're not going to have any part in trying to make their community safer. And their elected officials and their voters will have something to say about it when that time comes. But, you know, I, I've said before, I, I just think it's embarrassing for them because they literally only have one job, law and order. They have a law. They're supposed to enforce it. And they're just they're telegraphing that they won't do that because of their personal preference. And they should be embarrassed. Bob, what's been the reaction that you've received personally uh, from just law enforcement people that you meet? Uh, you must meet a lot of them in your job. You know, just private conversations. Don't tell me who they people are, but just general, what's the response from law enforcement officers when they uh, encounter you? Uh, law enforcement has a variety of perspectives. Uh, they're not a monolithic thing, just like any other uh, sector or, or job. But um, what I do find the most and I, I would describe it as um, similar to what I hear from teachers. Teachers feel under siege and they feel underappreciated. They feel tapped. They feel undervalued. They're not paid enough. And the community doesn't really respect what they do, uh, especially during COVID. I heard a lot of that. I heard that from nurses during COVID too. And what I hear from law enforcement is this feeling of being under siege. Uh, I think that some of this is just has been beat into them through a variety of things, real and perceived. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. They believe it. They believe they're under attack and and not appreciate it. And that really that that's a real issue that I think long term it's going to take a long time to address. Uh, when I was working on this legislation, there was a lot of um, legacy, hard feelings, and. Um, a distrust of legislators, which had nothing to do with this legislation, uh, that that really impacted those conversations. So uh, again, if I were to describe it broadly, I would say um, law enforcement has been through a lot and still is going through a lot, and and um, we need to we need to make sure that we're being honest about that and figuring out a path forward for recruitment and retention and um, the role that we expect them to play to keep us safe and. Um, whether it's to be in a social worker role for a law enforcement officer or literally life and death, you know, gun violence. Like mm -hmm. we, we have to have a, a, we have to reset because right now things are, are in a pretty raw place. Uh, I'll close with a, uh, 
sort of a, a refurbishing or a rearranging of the Michael Madigan uh, question I had with a different politician and get your uh, response as a politician, somebody who knows what it's like to run for office uh, and deal with the attacks and counterattacks that uh, politicians get when they go, particularly Democrats get. Um, so I'm not thinking of Michael Madigan now, who was trying to hold on to his caucus, as we talked about, but Barack Obama. And I recall when Barack Obama was running for U.S. Senate, his successful uh, pursuit of the Democratic nomination in 2004, uh, giving a talk uh, to a liberal audience, very liberal, I think liberal is too, uh, not uh, lefty audience, I'll say, uh, in Rogers Park. Uh, and it was uh, a private uh, meeting, so the press uh, wasn't there, but it was reported to me that uh, this is what he said. Uh, and he got to questions of guns, and he said, I share your sentiments about guns, but if I come out with proposing a, uh, a the kind of gun ban or the gun laws, restrictive gun laws that you want, and that I want, uh, I will not get any votes downstate. So I have to be smart about how I uh, handle this stuff. So I'm with you uh, in spirit, but I can't be with you uh, in actuality, which was uh, immediately reported to me by someone who said, what a shrewd politician Barack Obama is, and then went out and voted for Barack Obama, <laughs> even if he didn't agree with him on his policies, uh, guns. Has that changed, in your humble opinion, with uh, Democrats running statewide, Democrats running nationally? Can you win uh, with being more open about your support uh, for, uh, well, I used to call it gun control. So many different advocates have asked me not to call it gun control. Uh, so gun safety laws. Uh, can Just the fact that I have to say that, Bob, shows we haven't really changed. But anyway... Um, can you win if you speak what you really believe, even knowing that it'll offend uh, constituents who uh, really love guns? I, I would go on further. I would say not only will you win, I think in the long term, and long term I mean four to eight years, I think the dynamics are going to change so much that if you don't recognize that gun violence is just impacting our communities in these, these extraordinarily traumatic ways. And if you think that the old ways of, of saying, well, you know, everyone should have guns, we need more guns and, and more and more and more guns. I, I think you're gonna lose elections because I, I just think there are, there's a segment of our population that believes guns are gonna be taken away by the, the government. Right. They're stuck in the 1700s of, you know, if we don't have our guns to defend ourselves, uh, you know, life and liberty. Right. And that's real. But I think that that is a, a shrinking and shrinking minority of the way that people see the world. And, you know, my mayor in Highland Park, um, Nancy Rotering, talks about how it's only a matter of time before you as a mayor are going to experience a mass shooting or gun violence if you're in a large city. And if you're ignoring that and you're 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 talking around it, you're going to get left behind by the country that really wants to reduce this gun violence. I, I, do, I just don't think it's that complicated. Um, I think it's very clear that downstate is being fed a culture of fear. You see this with you know these new lawsuits that are being filed and they're they're charging you know 200 bucks a pop. Uh, sign up and get to keep your guns and be part of a lawsuit. You know it. 
there's a fear driver there, but I don't think that reflects the majority of the people in the country. And I, I just think it's a losing political choice. And I earlier on a totally different matter alluded to uh, Alex Jones uh, and him losing in the the Connecticut lawsuit case. Uh, and he's, of course, uh, the one, the, the personality, uh, to put it mildly, who, uh, who said that the, the shootings was made up, it wasn't real, and it was all an attempt uh, to pass laws that would take your guns away. Uh, and he made a lot of money and a lot of tension uh, for himself promoting that idea. Uh, and I think it was that idea had solid uh, hold to hold in the Republican Party. So where do you think that idea is right now in the political spectrum uh, in America, the one that was articulated by Alex Jones? It's real. There are absolutely people in our country now that believe that Sandy Hook was just made up. It was a white flag operation. Uh, that's so sad. I don't know. There's got to be a better way to describe it than sad, but it's just sad. Um, and so there are people that are um, hearing, and you alluded to this earlier, that they're hearing about a mass shooting and they're just, they're saying, well, we should do less yeah. to stop gun violence. And I, and I don't understand that. I don't, I, I don't understand the, the psychology of that. I know, I get it. Um, but I, I just, I, I think that there are, that message and that baloney is being sold to a lot of people that, and they hear it all day long, that well, of course, there's a shooting in California. They have these strict gun laws, so they can still have mass shooting. You know, if we if we really started to collectively address these issues, it's not just mental health, and it's not just investment in communities. It's all these things together. Yeah. So uh, we have a lot of work to do. Final question. I just want to clarify something you said. I want to make sure I got this right. Did you say there are 300 to 400 million guns in America? Is that what is that what you said? Yes. 300 to 400 million. Right. Wow. There's one for every man, woman, and child. And yet somehow or other, there are not enough. Um, Bob Morgan, thank you very much uh, for coming on the show. And thank you very much for pushing on this bill. It's something I believe in uh, very strongly. There's the madness out there is, is truly frightening. Uh, and uh, we'll see. I'm always in the game of predictions and I'm almost always wrong with my <laughs> predictions. Uh, do you have any predictions as to we will be like a year from now in terms of your legislation? Do you think it'll still be on the books? Do you think it will have been successfully challenged? What's your just general prediction you're going to make? No, not going to do it. Not going to do it. I'm a lawyer. I refuse to do it. But I, I will say what's really important to me in, in just the last few weeks, there's a big difference in the legislature when we talk about laws to reduce gun violence, it's a question of when, not if. So I think that we've already changed the dynamics in Illinois, that we know what we can do to reduce domestic violence. We know what we can do to address mental health, and we're going to do it. And and that that gives me a lot of hope. All right, very good. State Representative Bob Morgan, thank you very much for coming on the show. Appreciate it very much. And uh, look out for that poll. It's coming out. Yeah, <laughs> the Bob Morgan. He's running for mayor, ladies and gentlemen. Bob Morgan. All right. Very good. Thank you, Bob Morgan. Uh, that's State Representative Bob Morgan. I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of a and joy of all in Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. <laughs> yeah. As Bob Morgan and Alex Jones will tell you back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. The D stands for tomorrow. Let's keep up a raise. Take it up. Eddie Cash. Peace and love, everybody.
three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.